Hey, this is Craig Finn. You're listening to That's How I Remember It. Last year in 2022, I put out a record called Legacy of Rentals. The themes of this record dealt a lot with memory and the stories we tell ourselves and others. I became a bit obsessed with the topic, so I invited some friends and other people I admire to help me talk through these ideas. Specifically, how memory affects creativity, storytelling, and art. I really enjoyed these conversations, and I heard a lot of positive feedback from people who were listening, and I decided to push forward. So, welcome to season two of That's How I Remember It. We have even more great guests lined up to speak about their own work and creativity in relation to the way that they remember things. We open season two with a guest that I am extremely excited about. George Saunders is a best-selling author of short stories, essays, a novel, and so much more. He's the recipient of a MacArthur grant. His novel Lincoln and the Bardo won the Booker Prize, and he's considered one of the great short story writers. He's published five story collections, most recently Liberation Day from 2022, which we talk a lot about here. I was thrilled that George Saunders agreed to speak with me. I was really quite happy to learn that he knew who I was. He even asked for some songwriting advice towards the end of our conversation, which was pretty fun. I found his newest book, Liberation Day, to be an absolutely amazing collection of stories. And I'm really thankful that George took the time to speak about the book and so much more with me here. I love this conversation. The history's rewritten When the memories get meddled with The way that I remember it Thanks again, George Saunders. Thanks for joining me. I want to start this out the way I start all of them, which is, do you consider yourself to have a good memory? Well, can you repeat your question? Like, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I think I do. I really do. And, and the, it's kind of like the farther back we go, the better my memory is. I think so. And how do you think it shows up in your storytelling? Kind of at an angle. Like, I, don't, I almost never write uh, memoir, you know, like I don't say, oh, I want to talk about the time this happened to me, but it's more like the story, the story form has a need for something at that, at a given moment. So I need, um, you know, a petty humiliation or I need a, uh, a miscommunication or something like that. So then I just kind of quickly sort of halfway scan memory. And maybe there's another kind of memory that's kind of like, I know what you'd call it maybe like, um, it's not firsthand memory, but it's kind of cultural memory or shtick memory, like, you know, the, the trope wherein such and such happens. So I'm never, I never, in my kind of aesthetic system, because it happened is a very low value, you know, that doesn't really uh, matter. But if I'm, if I need something for the purposes of the story to keep moving ahead, then I just kind of go to that grab bag. And sometimes it's the thing that actually happened. Sometimes it's that, mostly it's that exaggerated or, or, slanted. Uh, and sometimes it's just kind of like, oh yeah, that kind of person who. Right. Right. You know, when I started this podcast, I was thinking about, I also consider myself to have a really good memory. And I thought most writers would say I have a good memory because I'm telling the right version of the story, you know, but it hasn't always been the case, but I wondered, cause some of the details, I think in songs and stories, sometimes the details is where these memories come up. And I was looking through your book and, you know, there's a, in Love Letter, there's this list, there's these lists of like that extremely loud seal, your sister's scarf drifting down, or there's another one that's um, uh, in Ghoul, which is candy stores, viaducts, boulevards, football tailgate parties. These seem like almost like film clips, almost like what I would imagine what our lives flash before our eyes. Yeah. 
is it your experience that some of these details come from memories? Kind of like that. The one on the, the first story you mentioned, uh, th- we live now near Point Lobos, so we go out there pretty often. But none of those things actually happen. But I, but I, so the memory part of it was there's a specific place where you can stand on this kind of path and look down and there's some sea lions down there or seals or whatever. I, you know, I can never tell the difference, but they're down there, you know. And so th- that never happened with the scarf or the loud seal, but it's just sort of like in memory, putting yourself back there. So, okay, so you're there, but I don't really care what happened, but I, I want some vivid linguistic nuggets you know, so to say that time we looked at the seals, that's okay. But then if you go one level of specificity closer and say a loud seal, that's just a phrase, you know, but loud seal somehow signifies better than that time there was a bunch of seals down below us. Same with the scarf, you know, so I think you're exactly right. I I think, you know, um, I wrote this book about the Russian short story and how mind processes story. And I think for some reason, specificity just works. You know, if you're trying to ensnare somebody in your fictional net coming up with a specific thing somebody i I read this recently the example was a white bunny with a blue mark on its ear it's kind of a famous example apparently but the the bunny doesn't do much but the white bunny with the blue mark suddenly your, your brain actually can see that somehow that's amazing i mean i think i find myself in literature but also in songs really loving songs that have specific details. Oh, and you're great at that. Your your songs are amazing examples of that. Well, I'm trying to. I'm always trying to do that. You know, I'm always trying to paint that picture. Early memories. Like, do you have a memory of a story or a book that moved you? Like the early reading that maybe not the first thing you read, but the first thing that kind of hit you. Well, my I had a, an aunt uh, who I love very much, and she used to. She had a pile of those little golden books. You know, those those kids' books. And I think what I I don't really remember the stories, but I remember the the illustrations and the kind of like. The sense, the sense in those illustrations of a world that was like yours, but more, you know, that kind of slightly uh, rarefied version of the real world. So there's one called the Pokey Little Puppy, you know, very actually pretty stylized, you know. But I, I remember responding to that. Not that I didn't care about the puppy, you know, that much, but but the way that the um, the real world was represented by a kind of a stand-in, you know, a clipped-off stand-in. Same thing like later with the. Um, I was a big fan of those peanut specials on TV. And I think I really responded to the fact that they they evoked my little suburban world, but not really, not linearly. You know, there's like there were no sidewalks. It didn't make sense. But but somehow I could feel my world in there. But I think it was the stylization that I was responding to, you know. Yeah, that that's amazing. And actually, that that makes sense with your work. Is there a story that you made you want to be a writer? I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I've told this one way too many times, but I, a nun gave me Johnny Tremaine by Esther Forbes when I was in third grade. And she really sold it because she said, um, first of all, well, first, because I was in love with her, that she didn't know that, but maybe she did. But also she said, um, she kind of, she had a copy of the book, the hardcover that she had gone down to the library herself to get it for me, you know, and she was kind of holding it back a little bit, like, I'm not sure. And she said, you know, me and the other nuns have been talking about you in the convent, which is like, that's like, you know, <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> and, um, but then she said, you know, you're a good reader. And I think these books are, that you're reading or reading in class are boring. This is really hard. It's really hard. It shouldn't be read by a third grader, that kind of thing, you know. So she had me. Then when I read it, she was exactly right. It, it's a real, that was kind of like uh, the first book that had style, you know, that wasn't just generic, lang- every language. The, the example I remember is that there was a, a line that said, on Rocky Isles, gulls woke. I can't say it because I'm a Chicago accent, but on Rocky Isle, Islands, gulls woke. But there was no comma in it. 
And I just, I kind of thought there should have been, but I noticed that she chose to not put it there. And then I also noticed that that made it alive to me. I could see the birds better with that, without the comma, you know? So I think that would have been an early signal that I had, you know, writerly goofball tendencies. <laughs> That's right. I, I uh, was at this beach house with my parents and I found a copy of um, the adventures of Huckleberry Finn on the bookshelf. And I, I liked it cause it had my last name. And so I, um, <laughs> I read it. I started reading it. My dad kind of picked up that I was reading it. And he said, why don't we read it together? We'll each do like 20 pages a day. And I remember thinking that it was really amazing because it was, it was a tale of a kid who was having an adventure, but it was funny and it was a little above my level of reading. Mm -hmm. Um, But that in itself was exciting too. It was like, you know, going to the adult end of the pool or whatever. I think that's right. It's that feeling of being led by somebody and they're not, they're not really waiting for you, but there's a slight sense you could keep up if you, if you hurried, you know, that, <laughs> that, that book also has got the, the voice of that book is so beautiful, you know? And like, mm-hmm. I think there's something, there's a, there's a quality we don't talk about much, but it has something to do with the pleasure of slightly compressed language or slightly more efficient language. And I think in, in like in your songs, I notice there's a lot of times where the line comes I don't have the technical language to talk about it, but the song of yours about the resurrection, this sort of res- mm-hmm. resurrection, that mm-hmm. line when it first comes, it comes somehow faster than you expect or something. It's got just more thought in it than you, it surprises you first, but it surprises you using fewer words than should be necessary. And there's real palpable pleasure in that. And I know in stories, that's why people stay with you because every so often you, you pop them like that. And that if they're thinking about bailing out, they go, oh, wait, oh, oh, this guy's actually, you know, he's more with me than I thought he was. So I'll, I'll stick around, you know, it's weird. I think also in, in stories, and I think about the Huckleberry Finn example, like that led me to always want to have at least some humor in everything. And I think mm. certainly in, in my favorite literature, but also my favorite songs, you know, to me, Mick Jagger, Chuck Berry. Bob Dylan, these are funny guys, you know, yeah. in, in their own way. And I think my favorite, you know, yourself as well, my my favorite authors, I, I get a laugh of every, out of every, you know, maybe not every page, but eventually. I think for me, you know, when I wrote that Lincoln book, I had to kind of reconsider what I thought, what I meant by funny, because I, I, I'm very happy to be funny. And that's when I started getting successful is when I kind of caved in and said, oh, all right, all right, I'll be funny. But then I thought, well, in a way, funny Funny is kind of a, uh, a subcategory of wit, of witty, being witty, mm-hmm. which I think means being in alert contact with your reader or listener. So sometimes funny is just, you know, there's a, there's a low-hanging joke, and I hit it over to you, and you get it, and we're in connection. But sometimes even if something is um, whatever is hanging over the story or the song, if, if then I t- lightly touch on it, you on the other end are like, oh, he sees me here. You know, there, we're, yeah. we're in communication so that gave me permission to be not necessarily funny but just more alert i guess to the what was happening in the narrative you know whatever i I had just done my job is to notice it from the reader's perspective and then slightly acknowledge it you know like that you know thinking about the reader's perspective i uh one of the things I want, I keep talking about in this is like the way, you know, our memories or our experiences form as creators, you know, for uh, help us to make what we make. And then you turn it over to the audience and the audience brings their own thing into it. And um, so 10th of December came out, I think early 2013, I got it as a new release and my mother was in hospice mm. and I read it, you know, as she was dying and I kind of went back, 
I had already read Pastoralia, but I went back and read Civil War Land in Bad Decline. Also at her bedside, and it wasn't the only thing I read. Uh, I read George Higgins' The Crime Stuff at the same time. <laughs> and it was it took, you know, it, it to, to speak frankly, it was a long, a longer process than we imagined. And so I was reading and she wasn't always there. When I read your sentences now, there is a sadness sometimes that comes up that that is imprinted from my own experience and um i wondered if you've if you've had that experience too if when you do you think you carry stuff with you with artists or certain works hmm. i'm sorry about your mom first of all oh well yeah, thank you i you know i'm trying to think about that I, I i mean the kind of silly but true answers i forget books quickly i'm reading the brothers uh, karamazov again and i i swore i'd never read it i read it <laughs> i did read it but it's just a, like a blank slate I get a little bit of that with Kerouac, who I don't, I don't aesthetically adore him anymore. He's kind of, but, but when I read him, I, I definitely am 18 or maybe I'm more like 24 again, you know, that kind of road, road feeling and all that. But I, I think I'm kind of more taken these days with the way that, like I, I went back and read those Russian stories so many times, you know, every time I read them, there was a different, there's like a, you know, some kind of glass that had different sides and at every time it was reflecting different kinds of light even day to day which is really interesting so i sometimes think about that i wonder if there's one of the qualities we should aspire to is that kind of um i don't know what you'd call it but uh it's like a hologram that never reads the same way twice and i think that's probably a function of the language i'm not sure about that but yeah i don't know you know we grow even if we don't grow physically we grow emotionally so i mean i read Kerouac for the first time when I was 14 or something, and I wanted to like it, but I'm not sure I understood it. Mm. And then I revisited it in my early 30s, and again, I thought it was funny. And uh, in fact, yeah. the Hold Steady named our record Boys and Girls in America because he says in On the Road, you know, he tries to kind of get with this girl on the bus and he, and she puts him <laughs> off and he says boys and girls in america have such a sad time together and i thought that was i thought that was very 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 funny at 33 in a way that i didn't at you know 14 yeah he he was kind of a holy fool i'd take it to dostoevsky's <laughs> word he, you know he was funny yeah yeah that holy fool and, and infused with the catholicism of i think both of our youths that sort of i don't know makes it brings some sort of levity but you know that's actually a good lead into this next question I had. are there eras that you're particularly drawn to in film music books art i mean civil war seems represented with through the lincoln in bardo uh civil war and land of bad decline also custer's last stand took place just after that and that shows up in the new book yeah i mean I, the 19th century is i i I like it. I, I'm, I'm inclined to think it's reincarnations. I, I just, you know, I just feel that era really strongly. But it might also be that it's far enough away that you can kind of, you know, sort of fuck around with a little bit and, and no one will catch you because no one knows what it was actually like. Late, lately, I I mean, it just must be getting older, but I am I find myself drawn to the 70s just because that's when I was a, a teenager. And it's also starting to seem far enough away that it's got, you know, kind of historical qualities to it. I just watched the a CNN thing on Jimmy Carter, and I was like, "Oh my God, that's a that a very distinctive looking time." But but really, you know, most of my the work that I like doing, it's a little bit ahistorical, really. It's just you know the, I, I guess because it in my heart, I don't feel like the short story is there to document or catalog or any of that. It's it's really to be a a thing into its unto itself. You know, it's it's a very specific form that that wants certain behaviors from you as a writer. So even though I might feel nostalgic about the 70s, 
the story is like, what are you bringing that in here for? That's not what we do, you know. <laughs> so, so you can sometimes use it peripherally, but I'm kind of a, a kind of a real servant to the form. I've said this on this podcast already to, with other guests, but I'm like really obsessed with the Nixon era. I was born in '71, and I see those films, especially your TV from that era, and it's almost like trying to confirm a memory that, like, you know, just the the way men and women dress, the cars. And I, I just, like, I, I can't, I'm just looking in the background of the shots, you know, the signage and stuff, because it's like, I think it's when I started forming memories. And it's really interesting to me that those are the years. I love the, the way that uh, you can, you can see that in, in the broadcast voices, there's certain conventions. So in the 1970s, they might talk like this a little more, you know, and you think, oh, that's 1970. Yeah. yeah. It, it's also really interesting. I'm 63 this year. So it's interesting to look back at what was just like water to me, 1967, you know, and see how freaky it was, you know, how peculiar and kind of beautifully malformed that the public discourse was and the TV shows and the whole thing was just a kind of a hot mess. But at the time, it just seemed like, oh, that's the world, you know? (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. So I want to talk to you about this new collection of stories, Liberation Day. But in regards to memory and creativity, I first want to circle back to one of my favorite pieces about writing, which is your author's note from Civil War Land and Bad Decline. Talks about your time working at the Radiant Corporation in Rochester, New York, where you wrote that particular book, and your trials of being writer up to that point. And now that you've had a career, a successful writer, awards, academia, TV appearances, do you still call on the memories of working in an office like that to create? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I don't even have to call on them. It's just it's just in your DNA. You know, it's like I was joking with somebody the other day, that feeling I still have the credit card flinch. Like when you <laughs> hand over the card and you wait like a oh, good little altar boy. Oh, oh. And try, try not to show uh, too much pleasure when it when it goes through. Yeah, no, I do. I, I'm actually really drawn to a lot of time. You know, our kids were little. And I guess it was, the, you know, the, the thing that's sweet about it was it really wasn't a given that writing would work out. So it was. I look back at that guy. I'm like, oh, he's kind of sweet. You know, he's taking a real leap of faith on that. He's got no plan B whatsoever, and he's really like reverent about you know trying to find a couple minutes to work and then finding a couple minutes to read a little Barry Hannah or Raymond Carver or or, uh, Grace Paley or Toni Morrison just to kind of wake himself up again. And I think that was really kind of cute, you know, (laughs) that that I believe in this. And I wasn't young. I was you know thirty. 30, 31, 32, 33, and yeah. had responsibilities. But yeah, that was. The, the, I was just thinking that those sort of the rock and roll version of that, you know, if you don't remember what it's like to be off the road, <laughs> you'd start writing the, all the road songs, you know, and, 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 <laughs> and, the, and the audience loses interest, I think. But also it must be so exciting, you know, for, I mean, for writers, it, the success, there's a big delay, but for you, it must be like, was there a moment when suddenly the, 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 the auditoriums were filling up? Yeah, um, it in in the in the hold steady we had a. Uh, I remember we we were going to do our we were putting out our second record. And we were going to we had this meeting because we we booked the bigger room here in New York, uh, the Bowery Ballroom, and it's like five hundred capacity. And we were saying, okay, everyone has to invite everyone from work. You know, everyone from their jobs <laughs> has to come to this show, or else it's going to be embarrassing. And maybe if we do that, we can get it half full. And uh, the Village Voice that you know a week later or something put us on the cover it was the first band that was on the cover of the village voice in 15 20 years 15 years i think and the show's just sold out mm-hmm. and and it was it was more i think it was probably more immediate than a lot of bands get to experience yeah that's a magical feeling i was thinking about that that neil young line when the dream came i held my breath with my eyes closed you know that that feeling like oh it's happening you know but but i so then i think once it does sort of happen 
the time when it wasn't sure it was going to happen is pretty sweet. You know, you, 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 it's kind of the, the time you can really do a, a big leap of faith every day, you know. Yeah, I, and I was in my 30s when that happened. In my 20s, I worked at American Express Financial Advisors in Minneapolis. And, um, you know, it was that thing where it was kind of the a lot of the cliched things we think about offices were happening people were stealing each other's lunch the christmas party someone would get out of control and there was <laughs> like you know call it was a call center with modular seating this like football field sized office and but these are very american experiences especially mm-hmm. in the 90s you know um yeah. may, i'm not sure anymore but like you know these coming together and it put me in touch with things that i didn't um I wouldn't have otherwise. And um, yeah. a, a thing at work from the new collection seems like it's kind of informed by that. Yeah, it's exactly. Yeah, it was, it was those years at, the, at this company called Radian, which was an environmental company. I mean, none of the people are tracking, but the, I was imagining that physical space and that kind of, uh, yeah, that kind of, it's it's pretty intimate. You know, I mean, you're mm-hmm. you're hearing fights from you know, with spouses from the next office. And, and I, I thought, too, at that time, for me, one of the big things was, I think before I worked for a corporation, I was pretty cartoonishly anti-corporate. But then when you get in there, you're like, oh man, I've got insurance, you know, and I, and this is benefiting my little kids that, you know, so, so there was mm-hmm. kind of a, a feeling of everybody sort of swearing together to make it work so we wouldn't be unemployed, you know, which is kind of sweet, but yeah. Hey, this is Craig Finn, host of That's How I Remember It, which is supported by DistroKid. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy, with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. Over a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, Tidal, TikTok, etc. All the major streaming services. Use the app to upload new releases, edit account details and metadata, get notified when you've earned royalties, and see your stats. And you'll get 30% off your first year's membership by visiting distrokid.com slash craigfan. So, hey, get your music out there and do it easily. Thank you, DistroKid, for supporting That's How I Remember It. I, I You know, th- th- you make a point to hear the different voices within that same story. And, uh, we, you know, we hear the struggles from work and home. Three separate characters. And it's super sympathetic. It reminds me that we all carry pain and struggle. But it also underscores that dog-eat-dog nature of the human experience. <laughs> and, the, you know, this moment of late ca- late-stage capitalism. Tim in the story, he gets kind of between a rock and a hard place with a moral decision, and he's going to save himself every time. Yeah. And Brenda, who is the you know class wise in the lowest place, is going to suffer. And hearing the story to me, the, the hearing their backstory kind of only underscores why that's inevitable. And it was, was that did that seem part of the story you're telling? Yeah. For, I mean, I always have to kind of discover what what I'm what's what I'm trying to say or what I, what the story's trying to say. And that one, it was kind of late in the game when I, you know, it's like you're trying to, at one point there was four people in it and I kept rearranging to see, well, what do you four people want to do that will be the most meaningful, you know? And when that chain of events came out, um, the big decision was whether that guy, Tim was going to step up or not, you know? And I think sometimes I would, in some of my stories, I would have made him step up, but in that one, the person he was didn't really seem like he had any extraordinary you know, uh, things going. He had a memory of his mother that was kind of motivating. But I, but I, when I got to the moment where he caves, I thought that's true. That's what I would have done because she did steal. You know, and and he he does have a family. So I thought that was kind of a moment where, um, you know, if, I, I think all my career I've been kind of trying to tell the truth about 
capitalism, especially what it feels like from the inside. And that one felt kind of like almost dry, like, okay, it's like, uh, yeah, his decision is a no brainer. I think any of us would probably make it in the real world. And it sucks, you know, it sucks that he did it, sucks that he had to do it. And then it sucks that she kind of takes it, you know, that that (laughs) felt to me like almost like an uninflected or unemotionally uh, hysterical view of of the way that the shit really works. I mean, it's not like anybody uh, does anything that dastardly, but just doing what seems normal has a sort of, you know, inhospitable quality to it or, you know, kind of a harsh quality to it. It felt like she, Brenda, in that story was used to it, right? You know, I exactly. Mean, she, yeah. You know. And also, she, you know, she, she had her internal voice was, "Yeah, you stole, dummy." You know, yeah, shouldn't have done that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also, I, the thing I, I really, I, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but at the end of the story, when Jen comes and apologizes, she has this language that she uses, which seems informed by apology and maybe a four by therapy, or uh, yeah. you know, it allows you to apologize. And right. at least get a second chance. I wish things had gone otherwise. You know, that kind of <laughs> that kind of thing. Instead of, man, I'm so fucking sorry. But I, it's regrettable that things occurred as they did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, we were, we were talking about specificity. And that la- there's a last image where, you know, I had a, I just went back and looked at it. There's like four or five different endings. And there's she kind of he, he collects these little toy cars, you know. So I stumbled on the idea of, of her having a toy car that she wants to offer to him. And at one, at one point, she just hands it to him. But then working through it and trying to be more specific, she it's like a little garbage truck. And it's, you know, and she rolls it to him. And then the language is he accepts it. So that was a case where just sitting there with that last movement for, for a few days made me go, oh, yeah. So you could get a lot of meaning in this if you just bore down on the, the specificity of that little truck. And how does she actually give it to him? And what's his reaction? You know, if he didn't pick it up, it would it would change the vibe, right? You know, yeah, I, I yeah. like that. I I did make a note in my margins. There's a uh, his mother. He talks about looking like a tiny discouraged prospector, and I thought that is a band name if I've ever heard one. Uh, <laughs> maybe in plural, tiny discouraged prospectors. So if you ever if you ever start a band, um, all right, I'll, I'll take that as a, as a blessing from a very high place. I'm gonna do I'm gonna do that. The mom of bold action is one of another one of my favorite stories, and it, it feels like a fable to me or a Bible story. The two identical men committing a small crime and what comes next. But there's the same sense of empathy, you know. Someone's always a brother, a son, a father. But there's also a sense of not in my backyard that comes out in the story, which is right. Yeah. It arises from their family's love of their child and their you know original true desire to protect him. And, you know, there's this idea that we all hurt people, the memory stays with us, but does hurting other people come naturally from this love of our own people, our own families, our own property, our own positions? I I think so. I mean, I think it, you know, like in a Buddhist sense, it comes from, you know, your, your, your hardened sense of your own self being separate and permanent and preeminent and, you know, the star of your own movie. So if you have that sense, which we all do, you know, except maybe a few people in the world don't. Then, you know, if, if like it's, I always think of it as the armrest conundrum, like if you're on an airplane, if we're on an airplane and you take the armrest, I've had this so many times where I'm like, okay, it's no big deal, man. It's, it's cool. You're all brothers, but I'm still like, why that fucker? Why doesn't he just, why doesn't he think I'm his brother? You know, why is he taking the armrest? And then he's, I put my elbow against the guy's arm and he doesn't pick up the clue, you know? And so, I mean, in, in a nutshell, that's kind of it, you know? So I think, um, in that story, I don't really blame her. You know, I mean, some guy, some old guy pushed her kid down for no reason. That, that guy should be punished. Um, and then, 
you know, because it's not possible for him to get punished, she kind of ramps it up. So, I, you know, I'm always looking for those kind of things in a story. Like you just start telling something to be funny or to, you know, get the ball rolling. And then if you're lucky, you you can force the story to to uh, put a character in a position where you don't exactly know what they should do. And that's always good. But, you know, if you know what they should do, you're phoning it in. But if, if, you're able, if you're able to write yourself in a position where you generally don't know what the right thing to do is, then you're then you're getting warmer, you know. I felt, you know, you mentioned a Buddhist idea here, the Buddhist thing, and it felt it felt that way. And, um, you know, there's this part where we kill we kill bugs. What are we supposed to do? Not drive. And um, right. again, you say you're trapped in you. That's the problem. Yeah. Um, it remind yeah. No, there, there's that. You know, how how can we be good? There's that that element of you know how can we be truly good and yeah, also very very Russian very Russian idea. You know, and I, in this book, you know, there are several stories where somebody was trapped in themselves. You know, and, and kind of doing the armrest thing. Uh, and then there were a couple stories where somebody had had their their self kind of artificially removed, and that wasn't so great either. You know, and they're always <laughs> trying to get back to it. So it's kind of one of those true conundrums where. I can say, oh, I want to eliminate myself, you know, but there's nothing I like more to come back to memory than than sort of sitting and thinking about 1973, you know, in this field we used to play in and my mom's at home. And, you know, so it's, you know, like fiction, I, I think, and, and maybe songs, too, they get a lot of power out of those places where resolution isn't really possible. You know, you yeah. really can't, you just have to stay in in that kind of uncertain state and the mother in the story also starts starts is is trying to tell a story a different story throughout the you know at least especially at the beginning like you know the stories we tell ourselves about these events it seemed to underscore that and uh yeah that that seemed to be part of your motivation of that you know like that that um she's trying to, she's trying to tell us tell a story herself yeah and she had, she has in the early part of the the story there's kind of a funny bit where she's imagining the story she wants to write but she doesn't really write them she just imagines them you know Mm -hmm. and her i mean i would say if she was my student i'd say you you know your problem is you're just trying to write the story in advance which is sort of condescending you know and in a certain way she does the same thing when she writes that essay she she writes it but she doesn't rewrite it you know so so Mm -hmm. she's got kind of a that's her tragic flaw she doesn't revise (laughs) (laughs) which is there's a lot of power in revision um yeah so, you know, speaking of memory, and as you just mentioned, several stories of memory uh, is kind of wiped out from these characters, and it happens in the, so to speak, the title track, but uh, uh, Liberation Day, but also Elliot Spencer. And in both the human memory is sort of treated like a hard drive, and in both cases, the person whose memory is cleaned is, like, becomes, you know, enslaved or, or you know, used for a sinister purpose. Um, why do you think you're drawn to that kind of story, and do you think it's where we're heading? Well, I mean, part of it is just for fun. Like, I, I like the idea of, of weird languages, you know, and, and uh, if you wipe somebody's memory out, they have the job of getting language back, which is kind of means they're going to talk funny. You know, they're going to talk a little bit uh, off. So I, had, I did that first in a story called John a few years ago where he, you know, had a, a chip in his head that was pumping in commercials all the time. So his language got distorted. But, you know, as the further away I get from the book coming out, I think it's I mean, I think that might be my subconscious's way of of thinking a little bit about social media and the way that so much, you know, compared to our 13th century um, predecessors, we have so many ideas being pumped into us from people who are far away uh, who, who don't really care about us. They, they have an agenda and they're pumping those ideas into us. And we're good at that. You know, that's a form of storytelling. We take those stories in and we internalize them. You know, I, I think it's not so healthy, actually. You know, you're getting a lot of, of garbage pumped 
pumped into our heads. Uh, so I think that was partly, and of course, some of that, some of that stuff, uh, as I saw when I covered the Trump rallies, you know, in, in 2016, those ideas get in there and they make you angry and they make you violent. And they, you know, so mm-hmm. I think that might be um, a way that my subconscious was processing some of the stuff I saw at those Trump rallies, you know, where yeah. there'd be two people screaming at each other. And if they had, you know, met on the road before the rally, if one of them had a flat tire, they'd be buddies. But because they have these, they're channeling their they're partisan news media and it becomes really, you know, violent, which is weird. I think uh, there was this in, in, in maybe the early 2010s, they um, found an interview that um, David Foster Wallace had done on one of the, I can't remember which Boston station, but one of them, the radio, and they, it, it hadn't, they never aired it and they found it after he died. And he talks about, he says, and then, you know, the interview internet was around when he was talking about this, but he, but it wasn't what it is now. And he said, this thing's going to get better and it's going to get better, and we're going to have a harder time telling the difference between what it serves at us and what's real. Wow, wow. Yeah, he's amazing. You know, he also did, there's a piece in that, I think his last essay collection, where he spent some time with a right-wing radio host, and that was really prescient because he said, oh, this guy, he's not popular because he's right-wing. He's popular because he agitates. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they would they would find some storyline like, ah, oh, the kindergarten teacher who took a dump on the flag, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and people would be like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. And they they would tune in again and again because they were addicted to their own agitation, which is which is different. It's different than saying they're tuning in because their their politics is being stroked, you know, and so he, he was a really wise guy. Yeah, there's a lot of nods to the current political climate in the book. I mean, the story of the love letter, but also in Elliot Spencer's, there's talk of buses and the sentiment around journalists. The other thing I picked up on in the first in the first story, the words adult son made me think of something <laughs> that I would not have thought in 2014, for instance. You know, mm-hmm. I immediately flashed to this idea. The adult son has become something in my mind. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, th- this book happened to be published before our recent election. Does this collection concern you, concern the here and now politically more than others uh, that you've written? Or do you think you always have that in your mind? I think it's always a fight with me. Like, I don't really want the politics coming in. But then at some point, I feel like the politics and personal, they're they're not really that different. You know, I mean, some of the the best books and best stories are, you know, inherently political. I mean, there's Chekhov has always... I mean, he always puts what we would call a political into a person, but you see somebody struggling with loneliness or struggling with uh, not being heard or whatever. So I, I, I don't, um, I don't mind politics getting in there. I just don't want it to distract you. You know, like I would, yeah. I didn't like in Love Letter. I didn't use the name Trump because I would like to think that, that story would, you know, continue to be useful even two hundred years from now. If there's still despots around, which I'm sure there will be. So, so I mean, I'm I'm always in the struggle. I, on paper, I think. You leave the politics out of it, mm-hmm. but on in practice, good luck because what's not political? And Chekhov has that story called grief, you know, where he's it's all about a guy who who is uh, he lost his son that day, and he has to go to work, and he's a, a cab driver of a, a horse-drawn cab, you know, and uh, the whole story is about him trying to get somebody to sympathize with him, and nobody will because he's so low on the food chain, you know, and in the end, he just sort of puts his head against the horse's head and says, "I had a son, he died," you know. Yeah. So is that political? I think it is, you know, that uh, the, the culture has made this incredible loneliness for this guy. And if a mob gathers, he's going to be in it, you know, <laughs> I, I think. I, you know, in, in, um, 
Yeah, the third there's another part of level letter. There's the flashed on today. It said third or fourth sham election. And I thought, oh, here, you know, this is a day to be reading this. But I and in my own work, in my own songs, especially as I get older, I feel like the dr- backdrop, which used to be the backdrop was late stage capitalism. I feel like it keeps moving, like it's like the backdrop that keeps moving up. And now yeah, it's yeah, yeah. bumping elbows with the main characters. Yeah, it's really, you know, it's interesting. I'm I'm in a place where I'm, I don't have anything started yet, and I'm kind of thinking, and it's like it's it's weird to think of writing a story that doesn't mention politics overtly, you know, like MAGA and all that. I, I, that's not really my style. So then you think, okay, so I, I won't do that. But then that means automatically you're writing in a highly stylized uh, world that's where the politics is going to be communicated communicated in kind of a secondhand way. You can't you can't yeah. So that that's I think what I'm when you say it's coming up closer. It's it's like that for me too. You I don't want to say. Trump. I don't want to say MAGA. I don't want to say this, but without it, it's just, I'm not quite sure where, what universe that is, you know, at this point. I'll figure it out, but. <laughs> I mean, you are, I feel like already, you know, like the Chekhov story, you both you just mentioned, but also Brenda in the, in the work story, there's this idea of finding dignity in, in these times, right? Yeah. For, especially yeah. for people who don't have tons. Yeah. And the nice thing is, you know, there, for somebody like Brenda, I think that story was sort of in the 90s, as you say. But even if it was now, you don't have to mention her political beliefs to see that she would have political feelings or she'd have feelings that would feelings of frustration and and powerlessness and so on. So I think that's kind of where my you know, I think about that Gogol story, the overcoat. Uh, That's just so beautiful. And it's for any time or place. It's about the person who is being shit upon, you know, and and. uh, so I think that's kind of where I, what I'm inclined to do, but it is it is a pretty crazy time right now, and uh, you you do sort of feel like you should use your artistic power to do something, but I don't know. Sometimes your artistic power says, "Hey, don't use me for that." Sheesh. <laughs> well, there's this idea of, throughout the the stories that there, there's like a, like peeking under the curtain. There's an impending revolution. I feel like there's <laughs> it's it's some sometimes it's overtly discussed, but sometimes not. It's just a mention, you know. After you know, but it's in the air. And your stories, I always feel a lot of Merced in the, to me in the near future. Mm-hmm. Um, is this sort of where you get to when you play the models out? You know? Yeah, I mean that's really what it is. It's not, and I don't mean those messages to be general. And I hope if we do have a revolution, it's a gentle one, you know. But, but yeah, that's actually, it's actually very much like turning the crank. And I have a way of turning the crank, which is to be. It has to do with line, you know, close line editing, and and kind of like paying a lot of attention to logic. Uh, paying a lot of attention to nuances of language, and it, so by the time you get to the last page of the story, it's got it's in a pretty narrow corridor. You know, it, it can't do anything, it, it, just anything. It has to do a specific thing, and sometimes it comes down to two choices, and one of them will feel more authentic than the other. Or so at the end of Ghoul, there's a pretty directly revolutionary statement. You know, I just mm-hmm. hope the old world, you know, overturn the old world. That's just him. I mean, that's where he is. He's just found out some really shocking things about his world, and he's made a resolution to not cooperate. And that's what he said, you know. <laughs> so I'm like, well, okay. Does that statement make sense in this world? And I thought, yeah, it really does. So we just let us stand and see. Yeah, I mean, this connection to this idea of a revolution is a better world. And you mentioned. 
back in that author's note in the Civil War that you, you liked amusement parks, and that's always been kind of a part of your work, this world building. And it comes up in Ghoul, you know, kind of an underground simulated world, but, la- you know, that lacks these visitors, which I took, you know, really to be a faith. But did you ever, did you build models, model railroads, that kind of thing, or is the interest purely literary? I just wanted to. We, we went, uh, our family went to Six Flags over Texas once and all the way home, uh, and this was, I mean, this was, we were driving from Texas to Chicago. Uh, my sister and I made this elaborate plan to build a scale model. We, ne- we never did it, but I was always uh, interested in that. Yeah. And I had, you know, like, like your standard army man thing. And it would sometimes get quite, quite elaborate in the basement. Well, I mean, does that 30,000 feet kind of thing of these, these, these worlds allow you to see things in a bigger way? Do you think like, you know, thinking of things in miniature in that sense? I, I think so. Yeah. I mean, to me, you know, I, I, I'm not really very good on th- the theory of my own stuff, but with the, the main thing is I'm trying to, um, you know, I'm kind of a control freak and I'm, and I've got, my ideas are often way too simple about things. I'm kind of a purist, you know? So for me, the whole craft thing is to try to find myself confused, to write myself into a state of confusion, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so that I really don't know what I'm trying to do in the story or what the takeaway is or the theme that that's like 90% of my process is to, is to just confuse the part of me that wants to pronounce and, and convert that into the part that wants to explore. And so that's why the theme parks really, I, I, if I put my, especially early on, if I put the story there, it, it kind of cut into this kind of Hemingway-esque realism that I was inclined to want to do. Cause you can't really do it if you're in a theme park, it's too, too goofy, you know? So, so I think in some ways that's, um, I don't know if there's a musical equivalent, but I wish there was because I, I, as a musician, I, I'm very a simpleton. You know, like I can't seem to sound original. <laughs> but in prose, I, there are just certain tricks or obstructions you put in front of yourself, and then suddenly you, whatever you do is going to be a little offbeat because you you designed it in. Is there a music? Can you give me a hint? Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, what I was going to say is, in my own songs, I, I'm someone who's like mainly hung up on geography and hung up on, and I've written a lot of songs about my hometown in Minneapolis. I've lived in New York since 2000, but I feel like I know what the streets, how the streets are on in Minneapolis. And it, it, it makes me feel like I'm being more honest, almost to a, the point of a hang up. Like if I'm watching a film, I need to look at the license plates on the cars to figure out where this film takes place. And I, it strikes me as you, you take that away in a lot of your stories or it, it does not become important. And there seems to be, you find some power in that. Yeah. Because for me that, that, okay. So that's interesting. Cause when I think of it that way, and, it, and it's very natural for me to think of, I'm going to write a story cycle based in the South side of Chicago, you know, mm-hmm. but from bitter experience, when I do that, it falls a little flat. There's something, you know, I, I suppose there's the material and then there's the, uh, the bandwidth of the person making the art. And you, it's not necessarily true that a person can make their highest work with any approach. You know, like Flannery O'Connor said, a person can choose what he writes, but he can't choose what he makes live. So when I try to write an autobiographical story or a story set in a particular physical place, it gets about a six and a half, you know, that's as high as I can do it. And if I say, Oh, forget it. I don't know where this is. Then it goes up. And I don't, I don't really know why that would be, but I've just observed it. And frustratingly so, you know, cause it would be sort of fun. I would love to write a, a story about my hometown, you know, but somehow when I do, even when I do it, like there's a story called Isabel, 
I have to depart from actual Chicago and be, and go into mythological Chicago a little bit. So I think that has to do with language. You know, for me, um, making kind of goofy, over-the-top language is what I do. And if I'm constrained by the actual facts, then I, I, I forfeit part of that power, maybe. I'm not sure, though. That's, that's amazing. Um, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. What a pleasure. Before I let you go, what do you play instrument-wise? I play guitar. Okay, cool. Well, I don't have any tricks. I'm not much of a guitar player, but uh, um, I know you talked to Jason Isbell. You can ask him about the guitar. <laughs> yeah, songwriting tips, you know, I mean, I don't know. I, I think you know him, but I'm just a reviser. You know, I, I just fill up a page and then I put it away yeah. for two weeks and I look back and I say, well, what's good about this? But okay, but at that phase, are you are you hearing melody or are you just writing poetry? You know, very simple melody like oftentimes like if if the verse is four four chords let's say mm -hmm. i'm doing everything over those four chords okay. and i'm not i'm not even saying like i'm gonna write a chorus i'm not a big chorus guy but i tend to start with the first line of the song and um you know see where it goes and yeah. uh, and let it reveal itself so so if you've got you know and if it goes c g a minor f i'm writing everything over that and then when i revisit it I might find the two lines that I actually think, well, that kind of looks like a chorus. Ah, right, right, and so right. maybe we're going to hang on the G there and we'll go to the C and then that'll be the chorus. And, and, it, and it, the way that that's good is that those words already connect to the rest of the song mm -hmm. because they started out in the same place as the rest of right. the song. Oh, that's really helpful. That's interesting. You Thank write you songs? Uh, yeah, but not, you know, they're not there. I, I write songs the same way I write poems. I like, I write them and they go, yeah, nah, <laughs> no, that's not one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, 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 um, it's, I, I think it's probably like a lot of what we all do. It's showing up, putting in the work and revising like crazy. Yeah. And you know, the, the real thing is it's, it's, it's taste, isn't it? Like, you, you know, so you fill up the page and you make choices. Mm -hmm. Those choices are where you're, gold is you know that the ability to say this and not that and that's a really hard thing with my students I, it's so hard to communicate you can say you can the only thing you can do is you can get them in the habit of making their own choices but the flavor of the choices you, you know that's up to them <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 i mean but it's the same thing you can only make them right and then look i mean you you know you're going back to your author's note you know you spent a long time and in, in, in finding your finding your voice and so yeah. did i and yeah that's just yeah. part of it. You know, you know so. I, Rodney Crowell came to Syracuse. He's a friend of Mary Carr's, who's a colleague of mine. And he uh, yeah, came sure. and talked to some of our students about songwriting. And it was really interesting because he said something about, he said, you, you know, basically you, you have to be ornery. That's the word he used. And I, like that, and he said, he said, every song should be sexy. So I went up to him afterwards. Like, you know, give me, give me the insider thing. He goes, all right, man, here's the thing. Here's how you should feel when you write a song. And he made this crazy face like, like that. And I, I was like, I, but I think he was saying something about, I don't know, committing or, or something about the, the song can't just be correct. It has to be crazy a little bit or something. I don't know, but it was, I, I'm still thinking that one over. Well, I think it's but. like you said a little earlier, it's like you kind of got to throw a, a, a uppercut every once in a while. And, you know, you kind of got to like, remind them to keep listening you know and so it's just like ooh, did he just say that or did i yeah, that just yeah. that just hit me a little harder than the three lines before it. And, <laughs> you know that was I like may, that maybe a low blow it might be a low it's either an uppercut or a low blow yeah <laughs> or maybe both at once
So there you have it, a low blow and an uppercut. That was really such a fascinating talk for me. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. A huge thanks to George Saunders for coming on this episode. And also thanks to him for making such vital and thought-provoking work. This was a fantastic way to kick off season two. I also want to thank you for listening. I really appreciate you being a part of this. We have more exciting guests coming up on future episodes. So keep tuning in, listen, and subscribe. So that's how I remember it. Thanks, everyone. Stay positive.